1: Previously on the Simply Human Podcast, what it, what it means is that I I really like to eat, but I couldn't put sticks
2: my finger down the throat to, to get rid of it, so <sighs> nice. I exer- exercised it off instead. Yeah, and I'm six foot 4 and fairly muscular, and I discovered early on that if I worked out for a few hours a day, that I could eat six, seven thousand calories no problem as a kid. It's
1: episode one hundred fifty nine of the Simply Human Podcast with your host Mark Henry, two human beings being human. Our goal is to help you understand how humans are designed to eat, sleep, move, and enjoy and how you can start living more like a human today. And today, Rick, we talk about poop. We do. It's amazing. We have Dr. Michael Ruscio on the show. As you uh, saw by the show title, it is not Ruscio like, uh, you know, like Rufio uh, from Hook with starring oh, wow. the late Robin Williams.
2: Rue. Good reference thi- that I get,
1: Yes, thank you. Don't, so don't, it's don't not rue It's Rue-show. Rue-show. So oh. Dr. Rue-show is on the show.
2: So we've been saying it wrong no, the whole it. time.
1: No, I said it right. but I remember I said it wrong the first time he was on, and then uh, before we started recording this time, uh, and you jump on just a few minutes late on this one, but it was good to have you on this interview. And then... Uh, I said, "Okay, remind me." I know I said it wrong the last time, and he corrected me. And it's Russo, and that's what I said. So we we talk about a lot of uh, really fascinating stuff. He is a he is a doctor of medicine, uh, and he uh, primarily focuses on gut health and the gut microbiota and the gut flora and all things. Um, Man, I wish we had uh, been recording with him today, because you were having a, a gut issue, which we, we're not going to get into. We, Rick, we won't get into it. Um, but uh, you've been having some pretty massive diarrhea lately, and uh, we should have asked him about that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you got me. <laughs> 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 I was like, what? I don't uh, totally 100% follow. Well, you know, like... Well, like, when we reformatted the show after the first of the year, we said some shows were going to you know, kind of go off a little bit not do a lot of health stuff. This is like a health centric show. Yeah. So this is if this is what you're looking for, this is you know this is like the Rob Wolf thing. This is right up your alley. It's yes. not going to be a lot of uh, chicanery going on. Well, Although
1: we do, we do get in we some you do kind
2: of goof off a little bit in the interview. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's really funny, especially when you start, you know, anytime the word diarrhea comes up, you just can't you 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 make a particularly foul reference uh, regarding a suppository um, towards the middle of the show which <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> which that I, true. That was which, a good one. I felt very proud of that. Yeah,
1: well, I had really considered going back and editing that out, but I left it in. Uh, so just beware. If you're listening with your children and the word suppository <laughs> comes up, go ahead and just go ahead and turn it down for about 60 seconds. The um, so, so
2: kids were probably thinking this whole thing is boring anyway, yeah. so don't listen to me. <laughs> right.
1: Okay, so before, without further ado, here's Dr. Ruscio. We talk about kids and gut health, overdoing antibiotics, finding a good doctor, prebiotics versus probiotics, probiotics and poop, the four categories of bacteria, a low FODMAP diet, a Greg Luganis joke, which I thought was particularly fascinating, showing that you and I are, were twins separated at birth, um, poop transplants, IBS, and Dr. Ruscio's books. Here is...
2: Mark's mom. Mark's mom
1: we reference my mom. Here's Dr. Ruscio. Joining me today on the Simple Human Podcast, it is Dr. Ruscio, Michael Ruscio. I'm so excited to have you back on. This is your second time on the show. Uh, and before I give you the floor, I will say that Dr. Ruscio is a doctor, researcher, author, and a health enthusiast. He's, got, he's given talks all over the place, and he's just a super smart guy. So, Dr. Ruscio, thank you so much for being back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Awesome. Okay, so since you've been on before, we don't have to do the whole "How did you get where you are today?" talk. So we can get right into it. And I know your your people. You know, you have people calling my people. I my people (laughs) is just is just me and my uh, you know myself. But you actually have people. This is very fancy. Uh, And so your people (laughs) have given me some things to talk about. And also, I have a Google alert for like gut health and gut bacteria and so through that i'm reading headlines and i'm going through and reading stuff i've written like over the last like we've talked off air that we've had this you know book for for a couple of months now and because i've known this is coming up i've written down just some topics to to throw at you some of them you might say yeah you know what not really my field i have no idea let's move on to the next one but you know i think some of the stuff might be right in your wheelhouse so we'll just we'll just give it a shot how about that
0: yeah, I was actually going to say to you before we got into too many of the specifics, if, if there are things that you're getting a lot of questions about or, or things that your audience is wondering about, I'm totally fine with starting there if you want. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think you know uh, a lot of our listeners are our parents.
1: And I know we've uh, we had Rob Wolf on and I think we talked to him about this and there's just but I think, you know, having different perspectives talk on it, I think is uh, it can be can be beneficial for for people. And so let's talk about, you know, like, for instance, my son, my, my youngest child is my son. He was born under like kind of severe. Uh, a severe uh, pregnancy risk deal. He's fine now, everything's great, but he was born uh, C-section out of necessity, and so, of course, he didn't get the the bath of, uh, you know, uh, bacteria that you get when you go through the birth canal. So, you know, and, and he's he's got asthma a little bit, and he has to do the breathing treatments, and, you know, comparing him to my other kids, my two older ones that were both uh, vaginal births, you know he's got some more issues, and then he's got strep, so you need to take antibiotics. And you're just like, oh my gosh! Like we, we. So it's like, what? As as a parent who you know maybe you're coming into this uh, this world a little bit later, and you're like, oh my gosh! Like I haven't been doing any of this. Like what you know? What what should parents do to make sure, especially if kids are either born C-section or if they if they have been on this regimen of antibiotics since they were, you know, a few days old, how can we restore uh, that gut health in kids so we don't set them up for, for failure later in
0: life? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think that is maybe one of the most important questions we can ask and try to act on, because I think we have the most potential for benefit if we really try to improve the, the gut health and the microbiota health of children, because, that's when you have the highest ability to to really influence the gut microbiota and just to clarify for the audience the the gut microbiota is essentially the world of of bacteria and and fungus and other related life that lives in your gut and if it forms the right way has a very beneficial impact on the host in a wide variety of, of of areas and also has a very strong impact on the immune system and that's kind of where like the asthma angle ties in. So a lot of the programming for the gut microbiota and the immune system it's connected to really occurs by about 3 eight, 3 years of age. And so if if we can intervene in early life we can really set a child up for a better hand for the rest of their life right. and and so I, I do think this is an area that really deserves a lot of attention because if you're coming into this conversation at 35 there's definitely stuff that you can do to improve your health absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt however if you can you know act at three months of age onward you can have m- more profound impact the earlier that you act so this is definitely I think an important issue I, I should also mention for parents that if if, for example, you had a cesarean section birth, I, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself about yeah. that, A, because sometimes there's nothing you can do about that, right. or maybe it's something like antibiotics, and you're looking back and saying, oh gosh, I wish I had pushed back a little bit against the antibiotic use, so my kid just had a head cold, and now I feel like a bad parent because I didn't push back, I didn't realize about this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much, because while things like cesarean section birthing or being formula fed instead of breastfed, they do increase risk. Sometimes you have to take a step back and, and realize that increasing risk doesn't mean you're guaranteed to have a problem. Right. Right? So about eight percent of the population has asthma. That risk will increase slightly if you've been cesarean birth, but it, it doesn't mean you go from Eight percent to now ninety percent. Right, you're you're a hundred
1: percent going to die of asthma. Like that's the yeah, no matter Ex- what. Exactly, exactly. So it's important to
0: keep that in mind because yeah. sometimes parents come into the office and they're they're so hard on themselves, and it's just important to kind of contextualize uh, these things. So, hey, doc,
1: real quick. Hey, I uh, yeah. Rick just texted me. Uh, he was at some meeting, and I think let me see if I can add Rick real quick and not and without being too uh, disruptive here. Sure. Because um, I know he'll want to hear some of this stuff. And. and uh-oh, this ought to be good. He's just gonna answer the f- the phone and just like drop an f bomb because he's not
0: gonna. Realize <laughs> <it>. Nice. <laughs> so this well, is t- totally un- unbeknownst to him that we're recording. Well, and
1: him? Uh, he knows we're recording. Hold on. I am here. There he is. Okay. Yeah, all right. There we go. I was having some w-
2: Skype issues on my phone. Hello. <laughs> all
1: right. So, uh, Doctor Richard, can you hear Rick? I can. Here okay, can. cool. So okay, he's on he is in uh he was in mid answer. Uh I, I interrupted him to, to you know, as I often do to, to interject something hilarious into the into the uh the discussion. Uh and real, funny. Yeah. <laughs> real. So he's talking about kids and and parenting and, and gut health and kind of what you can do at an early age. So, okay, so you were just talking about it's important for, for parents not to beat themselves up and, and all that. So continue if, if you uh, if you can after that.
0: Yeah, so it's just important to understand that there are, there are some things that you have no control over. And you want to do the best that you can with the hand that you have now. Um, and and if you were formula fed, for example, it, it doesn't. It's not a guarantee that you're going to have one of the problems that may increase in incidence when you are formula fed, which are things like asthma, allergy, eczema, atopic dermatitis, what have you. Um, but the the earlier we can intervene, the better, because it has been documented. For example, the longer you can prolong the administration of antibiotics, three months, six months, nine months, twelve months, the later that you first introduce antibiotics into a child, the less detrimental or, or, or deleterious the impact is or, or are. So it, right. it, it is important to understand that if you can delay some of these things. And Now, of course, if you need an antibiotic, you're going to have to use it. But right. you want to try to be practical. And, and, of course, if your kid has the sniffles and you're worried about the sniffles that he has, you may not want to resort to an antibiotic.
1: So, can, you, can you just kind of unpack that a little bit as far as like – Okay, when, because people just, it's like with the whole cholesterol and the fat. Debate. People had just grown up knowing. Okay, if you've got uh, a uh, you know sinus infection or something, Z pack antibiotics. That is just the. And if you don't do that, it's like I don't. I got sick over spring break. I had like a sinus infection, and my mom was like, uh, "You need to go get a Z pack." And I'm like, "No, mom." Like even like the CDC has come out and said, "Okay, we've kind of overdone it." But it doesn't matter. Like people are still going to think. So when should people what what questions should people ask at the doctor to say, "Okay, this is strep throat. This is bacterial." This needs antibiotics. Okay, this doesn't. What and, and how long should you wait? Uh, kind of all those things. If you if you could,
0: mm-hmm. well, it's very difficult to give a specific answer on that <laughs> right. because there's so many nuances in terms of the age of the person, how immunocompetent they are, what they have. So you know, there, there's not necessarily follow these rules because there's too many derivations of the context to be able to give that. Right. But what I would what I would say is you want to find a doctor who seems to be practical. And I think you know enough of conventional medicine now has realized that we overdid it with antibiotics, where I think it's it's more of a rarity. you're going to find a doctor who's gung- ho about antibiotics, and you're probably going to get more of a reserved posturing regarding antibiotics. But one thing you'll want to do is is have try to find a doctor that you have confidence in is not going to be overzealous with antibiotics, which is probably going to be pretty across the board, right? Um, the other thing is consider what the, the potential pathogen or thing it is that you're fighting is. Sometimes the, the worst endpoint of a given infection might be a couple days of, of diarrhea and fever. And that's, that's the worst case scenario. That's Rick's so, just
1: baseline. Rick's like basic cable uh, is diarrhea and say, fever. Uh, <laughs>
2: diarrhea and fever. Like, uh, I call that Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: Nice. Oh so I mean, for, yeah, the, where that gets challenging is if you have a child and you're worried about that child and they have a little bit of diarrhea and a fever, that can be very disheartening as a parent. Right. Totally get that. Um, But that's where you want to work with your doctor and have a communication and not overreact. Okay, my kid is sick. I want to help them. Yes, we all want to help our kids. But if they end up having a transient gut bug that's self-limiting, meaning the body will get over it on its own, and the worst outcome would be a few days of diarrhea, then we probably don't want to use an antibiotic. If it's something that's known to cause... Frank damage and and can be life threatening or cause significant damage, then yes, we would want to use an antibiotic. So it's really I, trying to use I, antibiotics as, as conservatively as possible.
2: But how do you know the difference between so, you know what do you call like a transient uh, bug or what have you or something serious? Just the doctor will. I mean, it, take him to the doctor, right?
0: Take him, yeah, take him to the doctor, and then most doctors should be able to ferret this out. Most food poisoning, for example is transient. Most of it is viral. Uh, Some of these things are are bacterial, but oftentimes they're self-limiting bacteria. But to my earlier point, there's there's so many different derivations that you want to check in with your doctor on that. Also, I'm not a pediatrician, so I can't say that these are things that I'm, you know, knee-deep in every day dealing with the specifics. But the, the principle that you want to take away from this dialogue is antibiotics are okay, but you, you want to use them as judiciously as possible. And just defer to the judgment of your medical provider in terms of if you need to use an antibiotic or if you don't. And don't, don't go in there hard-pressing after an antibiotic.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, another thing that people get so – there's like there's a conditioning factor because, okay, you're sick, you take an antibiotic, and, oh, I'm better. But if you had, if you had could redo that, and you didn't take the antibiotic, you're probably going to get better at that same point anyway. You know, it's like, what is that like called, like return to baseline or, or something like that? Like you're going to go, you're going to resort to the, kind of that homeostasis anyway. But you throw the antibiotics in, and then all of a sudden, we've conditioned ourselves to think, oh, it was because of the antibiotics. And it, no, it's just your immune system. A healthy immune system is designed to just to stave that off on
0: its own. Right, especially if it's viral. Also, many many. Of what we go to a doctor for, I have a cold, I have a flu, those are almost always viral. Now, right. a prolonged viral flu can turn into a secondary bacterial infection, so that's the case for antibiotics. Yeah. But that's not, gosh, this is a pain in the ass. I'm four days into a cold and I'm, I'm over it, you know, I'm sick of it right. and I just want to take antibiotics thinking that's going to accelerate the rate at which you recover. That's that's really not the case at all and yeah. that's where I think most of the overuse of antibiotics has come from. Yeah.
1: Well, that's all great stuff, and yeah, I, like that was a great, was a terrible question. Like, what t- should parents do with their kids? It's Like, uh, uh <laughs> I need to see their child first before. And I'm not a pediatrician, so that was a good, uh, a good answer. Um, well, what are the difference? I know a lot of people, uh, you know, our kids take a, like a probiotic, you know, and then we do, uh, we, you know, we get like good yogurt, uh, and we do uh, other things. Uh, you know, you get like real sauerkraut, not the sauerkraut that's been, you know, just soaked in vinegar. But you know, as far as Prebiotics, and then you hear the word probiotics. Probiotics, prebiotics help us kind of uh, differentiate between the two of those.
0: Sure, and this this kind of continues into the answer of the question that you asked about you know early life factors in kids and what you can do. Because while the earlier an antibiotic is administered, the more dangerous it is, or, or the, mal- the more I shouldn't say dangerous, the, the more harmful it potentially could right. be. But that also works in the inverse the earlier you administer probiotics or prebiotics, the more beneficial they can be. And there have been studies done where they would start infants on a probiotic, for example, at three months of age compared to six months of age compared to 12 months of age. And they've shown in some of the studies, the earlier the administration of the probiotic, the more beneficial it is. Probiotics are just bacteria, healthy bacteria. They don't actually colonize you. That's that's a little bit of a misnomer. People oftentimes think I just take these probiotics that are healthy bacteria and they take up residence in my gut. They don't really colonize you, most probiotics that is, but they do have a beneficial impact on the bacteria in the gut, on the immune system in the gut, and on the host. So probiotics are bacteria and we can come back to kind of how I break down probiotics into four general classes to help give people some ease of navigation of all the litany of products you see out there. You can really break them down into four categories. But probiotics are bacteria that have a beneficial effect on the host, living bacteria that have a beneficial effect on the host. And then prebiotics are compounds that feed probiotics or like food for probiotics. And so in in children… If,
2: What'd you call the probiotics? What, what was your thing? Your little tagline for probiotics?
0: Probiotics are live organisms that have a beneficial effect on the host. So it's essentially is, you, like interesting, bacteria.
2: It, interestingly enough, that was the the same thing I said like my wedding vow. That was what I said to my wife. I will promise <laughs> to be a living creature that is beneficial
0: to her. <laughs> yeah. So romantic. I guess as long as you're beneficial to her, then yeah. you guys are all yeah. set, right? So like, uh,
1: S. Yes. S. Boulardi. <laughs> would be a, an example of a probiotic. Pre- yes. yes. So, that,
0: that's maybe the, so that's maybe a good transition into kind of the four categories of probiotics. Ha! And I, I should just mention quickly before I forget that if you have to give your child, your infant or your child, or, or even as an adult, a antibiotic, using a probiotic at the same time has been shown to help enhance the clearance of many infections. So oftentimes people think I'm taking a antibiotic. Why bother taking a probiotic at the same time because won't the antibiotic just kill the probiotic? Yeah. And that is absolutely flawed thinking huh. because they tend to work synergistically probably because many probiotics actually secrete antibacterial peptides. So the good bacteria fight off the bad bacteria. It's like fighting fire with fire I, I kind of guess you could say. Yeah. So. They can help they can help with the clearance of the infection, and they can help prevent loss or imbalances in your good bacteria that reside in your intestines so that 's one simple thing that the audience can do mark if if an uh, infant child adult has to take a antibiotic, they can co administer a probiotic at the same time. Is it normal for like a a child you know maybe under the age of
1: three when you take a they take a probiotic to have like their um uh, fecal matters, their bowel movement matters become like looser, or like the, it, it affects the the defecation process. Is that normal?
0: That can happen in anything from an infant up through an adult. Okay. So the the impact from probiotics is not always going to be positive. Some people will have a negative reaction to probiotics, and that's why it's good to try from the different categories of probiotics uh. because you may not tolerate one category but tolerate another but also important to mention that just because probiotics are probably beneficial for the majority of people that doesn't mean there's not a smaller subset that may have a negative reaction to them
1: now if there if you do have a negative reaction you shouldn't just be like well it's just your body will eventually deal with it you should maybe experiment with a different uh, category
0: i typically like to give people anywhere for, you know around 3 to 5 days and after three to five days, if, if a negative type reaction is still present, then it's probably not going to be something that works for you. Sometimes, the first couple days when you're introducing something new into the system, you can have a little bit of turbulence. I'm a little bit gassy. I got a little bit constipated. My stools were a little bit looser as things are adjusting because remember, the, that probiotic may be killing out an overgrowth of bad stuff in the gut. and While that's happening, it may cause a little bit of turbulence, but that typically doesn't last over a week in my opinion usually three to five days is where you'll see some turbulence come on and then fade away and then after you know day five six seven they're feeling at least at baseline if not better so that that's the 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 timing can help to answer that question cool
2: all right so if i'm going to start you know uh taking probiotics like do i just go to the store and say give me a probiotic in my mouth please what should i be looking for specifically For uh
0: something like this. Well for you, well, Rick, I, it, I think I you need it depends to, on what kind of store you're going to. Yeah, but. you need to there's one oh. for,
1: for Rick, I, I would suggest the one the kind that you do like as a suppository. Uh that would that would be for you the best uh option. Yeah.
2: It's the same like suppository
1: I gave your mom last Okay. Time. Okay. <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, uh should I edit that or not? I guess we, I'll I guess I'll leave
0: nope,
1: that. Leave yeah. that in. Leave it in. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so you. to answer to answer the question. <laughs> sorry.
2: Yes. So, this, so this what should be looking for to start a probiotic uh, regimen, yeah. I guess?
0: Right. So this, this is where understanding the, the four classes of probiotics can be helpful because if you try to navigate this via products, there's like Magillion. a couple hundred yeah. versions of category one, right? Mm-hmm. So in, But they're all kind of just a remixture of the ingredients that are in category one probiotics. So the, the categories, as I define them, and I'm defining them based upon a fairly extensive review of the medical literature in terms of the different types of probiotics that have been used, not looking to make this more difficult than it has to be, but looking for kind of, okay, let's cut through the BS, and if we look at all these different probiotic studies, do we see some general trends stick out? And we do. We see that one class of probiotics, generally speaking, is comprised of lactobacillus strains and bifidobacterium strains. So when you look at the ingredient label, you will see mostly lactobacillus something and you'll see or you'll see bifidobacteria something. So bifidobacterium longum, bifidobacterium infantis, lactobacillus acidophilus. So you'll see those will be the different strains or different ingredients on the probiotic. It will be predominantly those types of strains that's category one. That's probably where everyone should start, probably the most well-studied class of probiotic. Now, category two is actually a healthy fungus. It's not technically a bacteria, and this is known as Saccharomyces boulardii. So, when you look on the label, you'll see Saccharomyces boulardii, potentially along with another strain known as Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and this is a fungal class of probiotic, also been well-studied, also been shown to be very helpful. Now, there's a third class, It's known as a soil-based or a spore-forming probiotic. Not quite as much research on these probiotics, but they have been shown to have some benefit, and these typically start with the term bacillus, and you'll see uh, different strains of bacillus listed on that probiotic. And then the fourth and final, you actually can't buy in the United States, but if it's especially for someone with inflammatory bowel disease or a fair amount of digestive symptoms and you've tried other probiotics. And haven't seen any results, or you have seen some results, and you're looking for another additional class to maybe even get more results. This class is worth consideration, and this is actually known as E. coli Nissle one nine one seven. Oh gosh, yeah, hmm. and pe- oh, yes. people oftentimes what, cringe oh, when the, yeah, when you hear E. coli. Yeah, one nine one
2: seven. That's the key part, <laughs> if you ask me. Right,
0: because my research. In, E- e- well, E. coli, you know, there are some pathogenic E. coli and it, sometimes people throw out the baby with the bathwater regarding E. coli thinking because there are pathogenic strains of E. coli that all strains of E. coli are, are harmful, but E. coli is one of the more beneficial and, and more prevalent strains of bacteria in the gut. So it's just, yeah, it's important to know it's E. coli Nissle 1917 It has a brand name of Mutaflor and you can go to you know, like a Canadian pharmacy or what have you and buy it on the internet. And for some people, that can be very helpful. And there's some very impressive studies using that type of probiotic, especially in inflammatory bowel disease.
1: What about uh, *Lactobacillus Snuffleupagus* and *Lactobacillus gregluganus? Are those? God uh, dang
2: it, Mark! You <laughs> just stole my joke. I was <laughs> literally going to say *Lactobacillus Greglugainus*. No way!
1: And no way! The second
2: one is going to be uh, *Lactobacillus Papadopoulos*. That's like <laughs> the father from the Webster TV show. Was That's it? Re- was
1: were you really going to say gregluganus?
2: I. I'm Promise. Oh. I promise. I've been sitting on that joke. I haven't listened to a word Dr. Ruscio <laughs> said because I'm like, oh, I got a great joke. I got to make sure he's in my second he stops talking, I get <laughs> to So Wow, hold well on. High That's
1: five for both of them. so funny. Children. Yeah. <laughs> Greg Luganis. I'm adding that into the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so let's move on to one of the uh, uh, you know, the articles that I've got, Rick, I was bragging about my Google alerts, uh, had to do with mood, sleep, and stress as it relates to the gut health and gut bacteria. How are those things uh, affected by uh, your gut?
0: Well, what's what's interesting is that as we've been learning more about gut health and probiotics being one of the more effective interventions for improving gut health were realizing that the gut affects many systems outside of the gut. So someone could have depression and that depression could be driven by a problem in the gut. This is probably why we see some very high-level scientific analyses showing that probiotic administration can be helpful for anxiety or for depression. And you know, it's, it's, for your audience, I, I sometimes have a lot of empathy for the audience because you hear so many different people talking about health and if I may be a, a bit just candid for a moment, there's so much BS on the internet regarding health. People who don't know how to use science or cite science and they're, they're just they're looking to say what they want to say and they're looking for something that seems like science to support what they want to believe and that's, you know, it's really the opposite of what science is. Yeah. Me having an opinion and then saying, let me find science Christ. that supports my opinion is not science. It's that's not more science. so dogma than it is science. What we should do is look at the science to craft an opinion and to and to update our recommendations and our thinking. So the reason why I, I take a tangent to make that mention is because I am not basing this upon a rat model or what happened in a petri dish. I'm basing this upon clinical trials where we take a group of humans, half of them get a probiotic, the other half don't, and the only the half receiving the probiotic see a noticeable and significant uh, improvement in their depression or anxiety scores. So it's, it's just important that when we cite scientific literature to try to help a healthcare consumer make better educated decisions, we're citing the type of scientific evidence that can help them. What happens in uh, clinical trials in humans, not what happened to a rat or to a petri dish or in a cell culture or what have you. So to your question, probiotics can help with things like anxiety and depression, but it's not just about probiotics, there are also other imbalances that can cause neurological uh, symptoms. Uh, Now I don't know of published literature showing a treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can help with depression, but we do see that uh, treatment of this, this bacterial overgrowth known as SIBO or small intestinal bacterial yeah, it's overgrowth. That's
1: the acronym SIBO. If you, if you mm-hmm. see that, that's what that is. Every list, the mm-hmm. listener, talking to the oh. listener here. I'm smart. And, I've done my research.
0: Tra- <laughs> and, and treating of, of this bacterial overgrowth has been shown to help with things like rosacea, insomnia even restless leg syndrome, which is neurological, Uh, even joint pain in in some studies, or even the improvement of cholesterol levels or blood sugar levels. So the gut definitely has a pretty profound connection on many other parts of the body. And that's maybe a good reminder for me to mention to your audience that if if you've made some basic changes, like if, if you've improved your diet and you've improved your lifestyle and you've improved but you haven't really gotten as much traction as you'd like, The next step should really be looking into the health of your gut because there's a very high probability, it's not a guarantee, but a very high probability that the symptom that you're concerned about or the condition that you're concerned about may be driven by a problem in the gut. And I say that because I see many patients in my office where they went on the internet researching their symptoms and they thought they had heavy metal toxicity. They thought they had hypothyroid. They thought they had X, Y, or Z. And then to make things even worse, they can go and they can find some of these non-validated alternative medicine labs and I'm not knocking alternative medicine, that's, that's what I practice, but there, there's a problem where some of the labs that we use are not validated. So you go on the internet, you think you have a problem, and b- based on the symptoms, then you can go find a lab company that hasn't been scientifically validated, that does a, a blood test or a urine test that tells you, yes, you actually have this problem, but you really don't, because that lab hasn't been shown to actually be accurate. And so then people go and they treat that problem that they think they have, and what ends up happening? They waste time. They waste money. So, something that you can do as a healthcare consumer to try to be as efficient as possible is start with your gut and then reevaluate. It's not a guarantee but the gut can affect all these things. Your, Your thyroid, your male and female hormones, your skin, your detoxification pathways and even if you do let's say have a gut problem and have heavy metal toxicity you will respond better to the heavy mental toxicity treatment if you've gotten your gut in order first. So I hope I'm not getting too deep there. But if, if you're in doubt, if you've made some changes to your diet and lifestyle, you're not sure where to go next, I would start with your gut, even if you have no digestive symptoms, because you can have a problem in the gut that only manifests as things like insomnia or depression or skin problems or what have you. Yeah, like I had now, it. Oh, sorry, Rick. You, talk, Ray, you talk
2: about like, oh, I got sick I going to ask a question mark. So shut up. So address your gut. We can obviously we talked about addressing with probiotics, prebiotics. What are some other ways that you suggest addressing? Uh, you know, overall, I guess gut health plan.
0: You know, there, there's a few lifestyle things that are, are probably just so trite at this point, but they're worth mentioning. Make sure you're getting enough sleep. Make sure you're getting exercise. Make sure you're not overly stressed, because th- those aren't going to help anything if those no. things aren't in order. So that's kind of a given, but just mention those briefly, then there's a couple of diets that one can try. And one diet would be the paleo diet. I'm sure many people in your audience are familiar with the paleo, paleo diet, maybe have tried the paleo diet. So the paleo diet does a great job of reducing allergenic or inflammatory foods, gluten, dairy, soy, not to say everyone's going to have a problem with all of those foods, but they're, they're some of the more common problematic foods. But there's another level to diet that eludes many people, and this has to do with what's known as fermentability. When people have an overgrowth, especially of bacteria in their intestines, which a fair number of people do, if you eat a diet that encourages bacterial growth, you can make your already present bacterial overgrowth worse. And what's the most counterintuitive about this is some of the foods that feed this bacterial overgrowth and can make these people worse are foods that look healthy on the surface, like asparagus or cauliflower, and this is what can elude some people and oh. why some people are saying to themselves, "Geez, I'm eating so healthy, yet I still feel bloated, or I still feel gassy, or I still have reflux." Well, it may be because you're eating foods that are stereotypically healthy, but are actually feeding this overgrowth, and this. This type of diet or, or a diet that you can use to address this is known as a low FODMAP diet. Yep. And so this will pull out foods that really feed bacterial growth. And if you already have a bacterial overgrowth, can help you kind of reset back to baseline. So those would be two diets that I would use that can can be very helpful.
1: Yeah. I used to know what FODMAP stood for. It's an acronym. I won't even try Uh at this point to remember fermented overgrowth diet man's
0: always permanent i think that's yeah it you know is. what it, what it, <laughs> it, it's it's a very like scientific acronym but the the way that it breaks down is that it's different structures of carbohydrates so it's fermentable oligo di mono yeah. so those are just oligo means one di means two um i'm sorry oligo means many di means two mono means one, one saccharides which are forms of carbohydrates and polyols which is another form of carbohydrates and all this really means is these are these are structures of carbohydrates that are highly able to feed bacteria well if anyone's questioning your status as a doctor
1: I think that question has been answered uh, with your uh, amazing uh, ability to recall that acronym so congratulations uh, you are ri- you are a true doctor <laughs> um, okay so let's talk about um, God, there's, a couple, there's there's like two things I definitely want to get to um, we're at 32 minutes um, let's talk about cravings and how this idea that bacteria kind of tell the host what to eat and then how can you change the bacteria to tell you to eat good things and also this idea that like we have more non-human like living things in our in, in, like non-human cells in our body than human cells and this idea that like the bacteria are kind of wearing us around instead of the other way around like talk talk about some of that stuff
0: right oh gosh you're you're really opening i know i know um (laughs) and if you know me i think you know more about this kind of worms maybe than than your audience so maybe i should take a step back because what what i really want to try to provide the audience with is helpful information and not feed (laughs) what i think is a system of education that's not helping people right right right. and so let me first say i think anyone who is in the space of you know, reading, researching, writing, they're a healthcare practitioner, they're a doctor, they're a nutritionist, they're a nurse, what have you, they all want to help people, okay, we all want to help people, that's that's a given, but I think we've inadvertently drifted into a very poor area where we're, we're using information the wrong way, and this is why there's so much confusion on the internet, there's so much disagreement be- between, you know, different camps of thought, and this is why things seem so confusing to the healthcare consumer, and this is my area of expertise, and I can tell you, as I've been watching all the media shenanigans, it's it's so disheartening because it's just soundbite after interesting factoid after soundbite after spin of things that, that sound cool but are useless to someone in terms of what do you do with that information. And this whole thing about... We have more bacterial cells than we have human cells. Yes, that's true. It's interesting. It's meaningless in terms of what you do with that clinically, though. Right. And there are bacteria that tell us that we have cravings, and these bacteria are at the root. You know, there, there are – those things are true, but they're meaningless in terms of what um, – so let me let me put it this way. So there there have there's been some studies that have shown, and I'm a, I'm actually pulling this from a, a narrative from Rob Knight, who's one of the preeminent academic microbiota researchers in in the world. We were both presenting at the International Congress on Natural Medicine in Australia about a month ago, and he was giving the the academic research perspective on the microbiota, which is brilliant, and I was kind of giving the, okay, here's what we do with this information clinically perspective. So it was nice to be able to kind of, I think, each learn from each other. And he, he made some great points. For example, there are certain people that have bacteria that may make them more prone to crave French fries than to crave yogurt. And there are also some bacteria that are better at breaking down French fries than breaking down yogurt. Right. And he said, and this is what I love about Professor Knight because he's practical and he's not just taking a sound bite like that to try to sell you some, you know, BS concept of do this diet or use this supplement, which happens all the time. Right. He said, But here's the thing, guys. He said, when we've done studies looking at okay, we take French fries out of your diet and instead you eat yogurt and you know, the 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 some of the Enhanced data have shown that the most weight gain-producing food is French fries, and one of the most weight loss-producing foods is yogurt. He said if someone makes that change and cuts out French fries for a year and focuses on yogurt instead, I, I believe it was 1.3 pounds of a shift in weight is going to be produced by that. Right. So he said there's something very important known as the effect size, and that's oftentimes left out of the, the discussion, which is, you know, I want to sound smart and motivate someone who's listening or reading my information to do what I'm saying to do. And so I'm going to use this this narrative about the bacteria making you crave this or that. And yeah. so if you eat a different way, it's going to affect these bacteria and affect your weight, which is all true until you get down to the cold hard fact of it's going to affect your weight by 1.3 pounds over the course of a year.
1: Right. So it's like in the grand scheme of things, well, it's, it's kind of like that same concept as we don't, you don't need to know what a calorie is to be healthy. You know, like there's some things that you just don't need. Like it doesn't matter one way or the other. Like it just, you know, it's like I think people are getting like kind of too uh, deep into the weeds on some of this stuff. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I like
0: that. I like that answer. Um, precisely. And, and no, Mark, it's not that I, I. There are things that the audience can do to help with their weight. It's just what I what I don't want to do is you know, contribute to the newest fad. Right now, everything you're going to hear is about the bacteria, right? These specific bacteria cause depression, so here's what you do. These other bacteria cause weight gain, so here's what you should do. I don't want to contribute to the next fad, but I'd rather give people some practical information. Some of the practical information would suggest any healthy diet can help with weight loss. And we've we've seen these comparative studies, a vegetarian diet compared to a Mediterranean diet, compared to a paleo diet, compared to a… Atkins-type diet, all those diets compared to no diet plan at all show a positive impact on right, weight loss. Right. Now, the the lower-carb diets tend to work a little bit better than the others, so there does seem to be an edge for using a lower-carb, and that, that, that doesn't mean ketogenic. That, that doesn't mean only 30 grams of carbs a day, but it may mean around 100 or so, but the lower-carb diets do seem to be slightly better for weight loss. Yeah. But there's another component to this that's really important to understand, Or I guess, I guess two others. It's, it's actually the higher carb diets that are better at feeding your gut bacteria yeah. and it's important for the healthcare consumer to understand in the wake of all this craze about bacteria and the microbiota that the diets that have a slight edge for weight loss are actually diets that starve your intestinal bacteria, huh. perhaps because so many people have bacterial overgrowth. Right. But, but the other thing that's important to mention is, and this is more anecdotal, and what I've observed in the clinic is to the degree to which we can improve someone's gut health if, if they have a gut problem, then we have potential to see their weight improve. And it's not just about weight loss. Some people come in with malabsorption and, and who are underweight and desperately need to gain weight. Other people come in who are overweight and need to lose weight. And so to the degree to which we can improve someone's gut health we can see weight loss. And sometimes it's profound. There there was a a patient conversation we released on my website a few months ago with a gal who had a fungal overgrowth in her intestines. The only thing that we changed was treating that. And over the course of, I think, six months, she lost over 40 pounds, I think. And that was the only thing that we did. But that's more Mm of, that's the most impressive result that we see. Typically, it's you know, more moderate in terms of the weight loss, but you can definitely see weight loss from improving your gut health. So what I would offer to people is focus on these interventions that make you healthy and don't try to micromanage your health, thinking, right. here's a bacteria that's causing them problem, let me target that bacteria, because that's, that's very re- reductionistic. And that's not really the best model of healthcare, which is reducing the body down yeah. to a collection of different parts.
1: Well, it's like that that uh, product. It's like, here, sprinkle this on your food, and don't make any other changes, and that'll make you healthy. Like, what? no, right. Um, right? Okay, so we are we're coming up. Uh, we got five minutes left. Poop transplants. I know Rick uh, has has been looking at. Uh, pro- Potentially swapping poop with maybe like a a, a a orangutan or something. What? Or your mom? Uh, talk about <laughs> talk, talk about poop transplants. Is that or like the poop pills that like people people are taking poop pills? What is this whole thing about poop transplants? Is that effective?
2: Yeah. And and, and should I mail? You- you a box of my poop and you mail me back a box of your poop? Is that how we do no, this? No, don't, don't mail
0: me your poop. I've had people do that before. <laughs>
2: oh,
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. Do
2: that. Uh, hang on. i got to get to the post office real quick yeah. before they head out
0: today. <laughs> There's actually been a couple times where we've, we don't have a lab inside of my office, but we've had patients bring their poop samples to my office. Oh. And my medical assistant will tell them, we're not a lab. And then the patient says, "Well, can't you just take this?" Oh, yeah, she's <laughs> going like,
2: no, take with It gonna
0: like <laughs> gonna go Just gonna go dump it out in the backyard or
1: something like. Uh, <laughs> they,
2: just, yeah. they use like an old, wrinkly, like a uh, brown paper sack. Like, oh, there's a <laughs> yeah. turd in
1: there. <laughs> They set it on fire and run <laughs> off.
2: My- my, who ate my, my baby Ruth out of the refrigerator? I was saving
0: that for later. <laughs> oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, thankfully no one's put their stool in like a paper bag, put it on our doorstep, lit it, <laughs> on, it fire on fire, and then knocked and ran. So no one done. hasn't yet. Yeah. Remind me have been-
2: Mark, remind me after we're done with the call. I have a really great idea. Okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: um, But to your question about the uh, the the crap souls, as they're sometimes called, the the, the I wasn't ready for that. That
2: was very good. Well done, well
0: done. Uh, Thank you. I can't take credit for that, but um, so so you. I will give you credit. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So, yes, there, there's, this, there's this therapy known as a fecal microbiota transplant where you essentially take stool from a, a healthy donor and you transplant that into the colon or the small intestine of a sick recipient. And this can in effect really transplant the world of bacteria from the host to the, the recipient. So it's really like, uh, it's, a, it's almost like an organ transplant, but the organ in this case is, is your bacteria in your gut. And since the stool is, is compri- comprised of so much bacteria, that's kind of how you transfer this organ, so to speak. Now, that can be effective. I, I want to take a quick step back just to contextualize this for the audience in terms of where this would fit into the grand scheme of interventions. Firstly, start with your diet and your lifestyle like we talked about a moment ago. Secondly, you may want to try some probiotics like we mentioned before. And then thirdly, if, if that still doesn't work, you may want to get yourself to a, a clinician that has a focus on digestive health. And you have to be careful because now that digestion is getting hot, everyone's proclaiming themselves as expert. as an expert unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, or 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 with all good intentions and and in a non-misleading way, just Mentioning that they also work in digestive health, which is totally fine, but you may want to get yourself to someone who's who's a bit focused in digestive health just to make sure you get the, the best approach. And look for things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, H. pylori, inflammation, other imbalances, and see those findings through to fruition. And if after you've worked with a, a competent gut-focused clinician, if you haven't been able to produce results and you have significant problems then you may want to consider an FMT, a fecal microbiota transplant. So it's really the end of the line therapy after all other options have been exhausted. And it's not you know there also at the congress in Australia there was a Australian gastroenterologist who does this therapy and he was making a joke that some women come in who are overweight, 20 pounds overweight and they say I want to do an FMT and I want a thin donor because I want to try to lose weight. And he said this is not this is this is not what this is meant for. Literally this is this is reserved right now in a shank- sanctioned perspective in the United States for those that have a non uh, a resistant case of Clostridium difficile infection, which can ultimately be life threatening. Yeah. that's what it's approved for in the U.S. I think the data shows that the next clinical condition it'll be approved for is non-responsive inflammatory bowel disease, well, so ulcerative okay. colitis or Crohn's disease. That's that's not really responding to other therapies. Yeah. You- um. I was going okay, but... to
1: say, uh, to your point on experts, Rick thinks just because he drinks a lot of whiskey that he's an, a whiskey expert. And so just because you poop doesn't make you a poop expert. So just do your do your due diligence out there, everybody. This is, this is true.
0: This is yeah. true. And, yes, you, you have to
2: right – Right now I'm furiously Googling doo-doo, and I'm becoming <laughs> – uh, I feel like I am uh, – An expert. I can call myself a digestive health expert. Soon. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I mean, you wouldn't be alone, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> of people um,
2: who are killing doo-doo, probably also not.
0: <laughs> true, true. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the the next most probably well-supported condition that this could be helpful for is inflammatory bowel disease, which yeah. can be quite debilitating and can ultimately result in partial removal of, of or, or removal of certain sections of the intestines. So that I mean, that can you know, th- this can be pretty severe. There's also some data showing that it may be helpful for IBS and one one review of studies found for inflammatory bowel disease about a 45% effectiveness and there was i believe it's around maybe 40% according to another study performed in China looking at IBS but again that would only be after you've exhausted all your other treatment options you also have to be very careful to work with either a clinic or a clinician because you have to screen the stool to make sure there aren't viral infections or, or pathogens or parasites or things or, or just diseases that may be latent or not causing a problem in the host, but could be very problematic for you. What do you just so, get like a coat it,
1: hanger and just kinda of like kinda of mix it around stop. and just kinda
0: of see what's in there? <laughs> yeah. That's why I would not recommend doing it. But but there there are desperate patients that kind of yeah. do it at home. Oh, God! I, I would at least recommend you find a competent advisor with who can <laughs> who can help advise you on finding a donor and how to screen that donor before you went the do it at home route. I would yes, really advise against do it. That, don't do it at home. Don't do it at home, least people. Work with someone.
1: It's like, I, I got Rick's poop. It's just I'll put the corn in it. Is this normal? Is yeah. this uh, <laughs>
2: Well, You heard it from Dr. Michael, Michael Ruscio first. Corn, there's go, a, there's
1: a dead ferret these. in there. Yeah, There's a dead ferret, like You're a gerbil. It. Yeah. <laughs> You're
2: not go get a, a random homeless person and like put your backside up to his backside and go one, two, three, go. And like, don't do that. To to I don't, think, I don't that's think that's, like that's a out. cell
0: phone data transfer. Yeah. And just touch them together and. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh, oh, I'm crying, I don't, Yeah, I did not think that's how that works, you like walk in, it's like an episode of Westworld, there's like all these glass offices of people like, putting their butts <laughs> up to each other, there's like a person in a lab coat next to them, like trying to align. It's
2: like a beer bong funnel, but they're just...
1: Putting a turn. Oh my gosh! Oh, we should have we should have started off with poop transplants. Okay, um, okay, we are we are out of time. So, doctor, if you could like uh, tell us about where to find your stuff. You got a book coming out. Uh,
0: Plug yourself. Well, well thank you. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun guys. Man. Um, oh. so there there's maybe three three links to go to. They're they're all at the drruscio.com URL, which is D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O dot com. And then if you do slash get help, That's if you're someone who would be looking to become a patient of the clinic. My office is outside of San Francisco, but we also consult with people via Skype or phone who are in our area. So if you're not in our area, but you're in need of help, then you can still reach out to the office and we can help you. That's DrRuchio.com slash get help to be notified when my print book is available, which will hopefully be available late this year, late 2017. You can go to DrRucho.com slash gut book. And the book is a whole narrative on gut health, how important it is. There's a section all about early life factors and how to set your children up for health. And there's also a section on how to optimize your own gut health. And at the very end, we take everything that we discuss and we put it into a step-by-step process that's personalized to the individual. So the, the process unfolds as you respond to make it Efficient, so you're you're not going to do any more dietary restrictions than you need to do, or take any more supplements than you need to. It, it's meant to be maximum effect for minimal investment, and that's at the URL gut gutbook Awesome. And then if you're a healthcare provider and you're looking to learn more about how to sharpen your clinical skills, I publish a monthly clinical newsletter. For lay people, too, they could access it. It might be a bit over their heads. But the, the clinical newsletter is at com slash review, and that goes over case studies and important research and cool. gives my interpretation on, on the research and, and so forth. So I might need to that's just, uh, that's a brunt of it.
1: Yeah, I might need to just delete my Google alerts and just go to that. <laughs> just read that because you never know what you're going to get on these uh, Google alerts. Um, yeah, like one right. article uh, written by uh, Professor Rick Bentley was per- particularly unhelpful. <laughs> Um. All right. Well,
0: hey, I I really. Oh, and Mark, there's there's also the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do have a, um, am a yes. podcast. I should probably mention mine. <laughs> right. Um, if you just search my name, uh, Michael Ruscio, you should find the podcast pretty easily. It's it's a uh, Dr. Ruscio Radio, and it's uh. Mostly on gut and thyroid, but um, you know we, we hit some other topics too, and have some interesting guests, and awesome. that's uh, that's been a fun fun show to be part of too. So yeah, that's that's some of what I got going on.
1: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time. As as uh, I hear Doctor Ruscio uh, scribbling on his pad, do not invite Mark and Rick on to the <laughs>
0: Doctor <Ruscio> Radio. <laughs> now with with Rick's laughter, man, I mean, gosh, I feel like a comedian. So yeah, right, I know. Don't invite him to my wedding. Well, I think. Jeez. And he and he yeah. doesn't
1: he doesn't let that.
2: God, the crapsule line—that hand, uh, that's—that was yeah. my good laugh for the day. I had well, thought about that. Well,
1: uh, and Rick uh, makes you earn his laughter. Uh, many things that I I say to Rick that I think he's going to laugh at, he just goes, "Well, not that's uh, okay. Are we going to the next thing now? What's the what are we doing?" Now? So, all right. Well, anyway, all right. Well, Doctor, I really appreciate your time. This has been awesome.
0: Been a pleasure, guys. Thanks.